If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 11 today. If you have a Bible, we're in Joshua chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there's an usher in the back. If you just put your hand up, we'd love to be able to put one of these Bibles in your hands. And if you need a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. Um, Joshua chapter 11 and, and, and even into 12 is kind of the last um, chapters that we're going to see battles happening in the book of Joshua. We've been in the book of Joshua for the last 10 weeks or so, and uh, we've been looking at uh, the conquest of the land. And this is going to be one of the last chapters that we're going to read of, of battles in the land. Next week, we're going to transition. Um, Nate's going to be able to uh, speak next week, and he's going to transition about the beginning of, of dividing up the land. And today, we're going to have a focus on, on what it means to be strong. We said in the very first week that we opened up the book of Joshua, God had a command to Joshua, and he said this. He said, be strong and courageous. And so we've said, hey, this whole series is all about being strong. But really the question is, what does it mean for us to be strong? I mean, we, we understand this is a command, but what does it mean for us really to be strong? And so we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at what it means. We're going to see that there are several keys that we can see from chapter 11 as to how we be strong in the Lord. So as uh, you turn there, Joshua chapter 11, if you have a one of these Bibles, we're on page 150, 160, and uh, would you you pray with me as we open up God's Word? God, we want to thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. We're so thankful for um, this building to meet in. We're thankful for these people that have gathered together. And Lord, we're thankful for your Word. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to open it up and say, God, would you speak to us? Because, God, this is you speaking. This isn't just a pastor giving his thoughts, but, God, we're opening up your word. And, when God, we want your word to speak to us individually. God, I pray for every one of us in here today. Lord, you know what our week looked like. You know what's gone on this past week, and you know exactly what it is we need to hear today. So, Lord, I pray that we would put the distractions out of our mind, and we would focus on what it is you want to speak to us today about. God, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask for your blessing in our time together. In your name, amen. All right, would you join me as we read the first uh, verses 1 through 5 of, of, of chapter, chapter 11. Follow along. It's on the screen as well. So it says, When Jabin the king of Hazor heard this, heard what? He heard about all, the, all that the Israelites had done. Heard about uh, the, the defeat of the armies in, in the south. He says, When he heard this, he sent to Jobab the king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Asha, and to the kings who were in the... Uh, northern hill country, and to Arabah, south of Chinarath, and in the lowland, and in Nabath-dor to the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, and the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together in the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So what we just read is in verse 1, there's a king by the name of Jabin. And he's the king of Hazor. And he's kind of the lead instigator. We know that what has happened is when Israel first came into the land, they went in and they, they took the battle of Jericho and they fought the battle of Jericho. And then they went and defeated Ai. And they kind of divided the land. They, they, they took out the middle of the land and took possession of the middle. So it kept the, the south separated from the north. 
And so last week we saw that all the kings in the south, they rallied together and they partnered together and they allied and said, let's go and attack Israel. And so last week we saw how Joshua and the Israelites, they defeated the southern uh, United Kingdom. And so now you've got the king in the north, Jabin, and he, he gathers all of the kings in the north and say, hey, we need to go and we need to deal with the Israelites before they come and take our land. They've heard all the news of what has happened. They said, we've got to do something. So they agree to join forces and attack Israel at the waters of Merom, which is just north of Palestine. Now, one of the questions we have to say is, is the author, the writer of this book here, he spends a lot of time talking about uh, the description of the names of the kings and the tribes and the ethnic groups and the geographic areas. And we say, you know, what's the point? Couldn't he just say all the kings of the north rallied together? But you see, the purpose of all of this detail that the author gives us is revealed in verse 4, where uh, the author metaphorically compares the number of troops, the, the number of soldiers of the enemy to sands in the sea, as well as the author highlights the technological advancements of the Northern Alliance of Kings. You see, he says not only do they have so many soldiers, kind of like the sands in the sea, the sand on the beach, but he said they also have these technological advancements called horses and chariots. These were things, these were things that Israel hadn't experienced at, yet at to this point. And so they see these horses and the Israelites don't know what to do with them. They've never seen these before. They haven't seen the chariots. And so the point that the author is trying to make is that the enemy is overwhelming. The enemy is completely overwhelming. Despite all of Israel's past victories, despite their successes, despite how God has fought on their behalf, the Northern Alliance of Armies have every numerical and technological advance, uh, advantage over Israel. Now, the natural thing for Israel to do would be to fear. To fear the statistical advantage of the enemy and to fear the technological advantages of the enemy. I mean, isn't that what we do? You know, we become fearful of people. Who? What, what type of people are you fearful of? You know, this is something that is common. You know, typically, you know, maybe, maybe you're fearful of lawyers. Do you ever get around a lawyer? You just feel like they're talking circles around you and they're going to trick you into saying something that you didn't mean. And I, I mean, I always feel that way. You just got to be careful around certain people you talk to. You know, uh, there's another, let me tell you a story. When I was in high school, some of you know I was a wrestler. And uh, I was a decent little wrestler. And my last year in high school, um, there was a girl who moved from some other state. Maybe it was Texas or something. And she petitioned to join the guys' wrestling team. And uh, she got approved. And I'm like, how does that work? She's a girl and she's wrestling against guys. And so she happened to be close to my weight class. She was a couple weights younger than me, uh, lower than me. And so um, she comes in and I said, there's no way I'm going to fight this girl. Okay. I mean, just number one, it's a girl, right? And my like, girls are, you know, what if I touch? You know, no, I'm just, I'm not going to wrestle a girl. But then there was a second issue as to why I wouldn't fight her, because the rumor was she was a state champion from wherever she came from, right? Now, granted, there are some states where there's only like five wrestlers, and so, I mean, it may not be too much, but she was a state champion. So not only is it the weirdness that she's a girl, but there's also the fear of, what if she beats me? I mean, as men, yeah, as a guy, what if I lose to a girl? And I'm like, no way, 
And so the short little 99 pound girl, she put fear in me and I was afraid of wrestling her. And I joined a group of other guys and he said, you know, uh, great, you're here, but we're just not going to, we're not going to wrestle with you. But you see here in face of impossible odds, Israel has a natural fear. They're afraid of the enemy because of all that it means. And what God does is God reassures Israel of his power and his sovereignty. Read verses 6 through 9 with me. And it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, you should underline this next phrase in verse 6. He says, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give them over, I will give all of them over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Mishthroth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until, they left, until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to them. He hamstrung them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Hamstringing their horses means they took a, a sword and they, they cut the back hamstring of the horse. So the horse was literally useless. You see, God's desire for Israel is that they would be secure in him alone. God's desire is that they would be secure in him alone and not confident in their own strength. And, and, appar- and also not fearful of the apparent strength of the enemy. Here, the total number of the in- enemy, and especially their technological advancements, it would have put fear into all of the armies of Israel. I mean, how could it not be? And you can imagine if you have all these numbers of armies with you, and you have these technological advancements, you can anticipate that they were rather bold in their proclamations of what the northern kings are going to do to Israel. I mean, they were probably bragging, saying, hey, look how many we have. Look how much better we are. But take note of how God responds. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about this. We're going to give them into your hand and some kind of generic, hey, you're going to go on battle and and a really generic thing. What he does is he, he makes a point to identify the very thing that Joshua and Israel fear most. What do they fear most? They fear most against the army and the technological advancements. And what God does is he says this. He says, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give them over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. See, what God does is he doesn't just give this generic, hey, you're going to go into battle and defeat them. But he deals specifically with the, the, the power of men. He addresses the power of men. Because honestly, whether we're talking about Israel in the promised land or whether we're talking about you and I and we're trying to live for God and be strong for him, the fear of man is one of the greatest enemies to us obeying God, to us worshiping God, for us living for God. Fear is what drives us continually to uh, functional saviors, things that apart from Jesus we believe will save us from our personal hell. The fear For example, if you fear poverty, if you fear poverty, what happens? You tend to worship money. If you fear poverty, you're going to worship making money, getting a job, taking care of all the details. If you you fear loneliness, what do you worship? Relationships, right? If you fear loneliness, you're going to worship that relationship so you don't have to experience the thing that you're so afraid of. 
Okay? If you fear uh, uh, men, if you fear disrespect, you know what that leads to? It leads to abusing women. That's what it leads to. The, 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 the fear of not being loved leads women to tolerate abusive husbands. Do you kind of get the, the key here? You, you, you hear about the fear? The fear of losing influence and relationship with people leads us to lie. The fear of dealing with pain leads that we end up becoming eating or drinking in excess or maybe even using drugs so we don't have to deal with the pain. You see, it's the fear that, that, that is put in us. But, but the scriptures make it very clearly that the only thing that we should fear in our lives is God. In Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those things who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So in the midst of this fearful situation, God says this. God says, do not fear. He says, I am here. I am faithful. He says, I am sovereign. You see, the first thing that we have to uh, understand when we say to be strong the first way to do that, the first key, is to trust in the sovereignty of God. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. We've talked about the sovereignty of God several times over the past few weeks. And I, and I think one of the things we need to do is say, well, what does sovereignty mean? What does it mean that God is sovereign? I mean, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is mysterious, but there's a simple definition I found in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And he defines God's sovereignty as this. He says, God's sovereignty is God's exercise of power over his creation. God's sovereignty is his exercise of power over his creation. Let's break that down just a little bit. This means first that God is in total control of the world that he created. Okay? This includes all of nature. This includes all people. This includes all of history. This includes all of culture. God is in control. The Bible teaches us that nothing happens, whether it's good or evil. Nothing happens apart from God's direction that is outside of his control. Whether it is the birth of a baby, whether it is the, the rebirth of a Christian, whether it is the death of a soldier in war, whether, whether it is the death of a sparrow in war, everything in all of our world has God's hand on it. Mysteriously, in a, a perfectly good and gracious and, and a just God, he purposes all things, even bad things, to demonstrate his worthiness and his glory. But the second thing the sovereignty of God means is it also means that God not only has the power to do this, but by nature of God being the creator, by nature of him being the creator of the entire earth, he possesses the supreme authority and the supreme right to do so because it's his creation. This is his creation. All of this is his he is the one and only God. He is the Lord. He's the only one worthy of worship and devotion. And the, the one we have the ability, uh, but not the right to question. God's power and his authority should lead us into worship when we understand the sovereignty of God. You see, the sovereignty of God is so huge. I want us to grasp this. 
I want us to come into an understanding of what the sovereignty of God really means. I want us to move beyond just having a head knowledge. Sometimes we, 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 we settle on things of, of faith, of having a head knowledge, you know. Well, I know in the big picture that God is sovereign. I mean, I think most people would say, you know, if you go to church, if you're involved with, with faith, you have a big idea. Yes, God is sovereign. God's in control. But the reality is, I think sometimes it doesn't necessarily transfer into our hearts. I mean, we know theoretically God's in charge, but the heart where our motivational structure is, we don't really live like God is really in control. And what I want us to do is I want us to grasp not just having a head knowledge that God is sovereign, that God is in control. I want us to, to believe in our heart, to actually be moved and make decisions based on that knowledge. That we no longer have to be paralyzed by fear of man because God is in charge. God is in control. This is what gives Joshua and the Israelites the motivation to step forward into battle against an overwhelming enemy whose technological advances far outpace their own. You see, when our decisions and our actions, when they flow out of the sovereignty of God, when we make our decisions knowing that God is greater than we could ever know, that God still has his hand on every situation, even when we don't understand it, that gives us hope. That gives us hope even in the hard times. Even in the times when things are bad, when things are difficult, when we don't understand why things are happening the way they are. See, when we hold on desperately into the sovereignty of God, we know that we're not alone. And we can walk in faith knowing that God can and will and is working these things together for our good, according to his purposes. And in regard of being afraid of man, we also have to look at verses 21 through 23 of this chapter 11. They say, And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debur, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from, the, from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only Gaza. In Gath and Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So here, towards the end of this chapter, the writer ends the description of the conquest by mentioning the Anakim. Now, if we think back a couple hundred years before this, or excuse me, about 40 years before this, remember when, when Moses sent the 12 spies into Israel? They said, hey, we're supposed to go into take possession of this promised land. You 12 spies go into the land and, and tell me what you see. And remember, two of the spies said, hey, this is a land that God's given us. We can go in and destroy. But there were 10 spies that came back and said, there's giants there. Remember this? And they said, there's these guys and they're bigger and stronger. And, you know, we don't really stand a chance against fighting against these guys. So, you know, let's just let's just disobey God because it looks too difficult for us to do. And. Uh, they said in, in, in Numbers 13, 10 of the spies came with this faceless report. They said, we came to the land which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and, and this is its fruit. However, the people of the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak here. See, the Anak, Anakim were a race of giants so big that the presence irrationally caused Israel to believe that they were bigger than God. They looked at these giants, these big guys, these guys that look like the rock. And they're like, man, they're too big. They're too strong. They're too much for us. 
And so they ignored God's word. They ignored God's promises. And they believed the promise that sin, that, that sin says, don't believe God. Don't believe God's word. Don't believe that God is sovereign over all. And so they, 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 they responded in fear to the men of Anakin. And so it's a fitting end to this war and a reminder to Israel that here the Lord declares that he is bigger and the biggest thing in the land. The Anakin, the last things to be defeated, the big strong guys, guess what? God took them out. And this just goes again, and when we look into the sovereignty of God and we look at the fear of man, I mean, we all have this tendency to fear what other people think of us. You know, we think, hey, I really need to go and I really need to share my faith with the people around me, whether that be with my neighbors, whether that be work. And we, we have this fear that comes over us of, well, you know, what if, what if they reject me? What if they don't want to hear my message? But you see, the sovereignty of God should completely annihilate any fear that we have because we know that God is in control. We know that God is bigger than any of the fears that we have. God is greater. God is still sovereign over all things even when we're covered with fear. Let's look at verses 10 through 15. And it says, And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor formerly was head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were with it, uh, devoting them to destruction. And there was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured. And he struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. Just as the Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. alone. Then Joshua. Uh, and all the spoil of these cities and the lives. Then Joshua burned. And all the spoils of the cities and the livestock and the people of Israel, they took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded to Moses. Now, see, this was not a very detailed description of this battle, but it was kind of more of a summary. It was, they went in, they defeated, they burned the cities, they took the plunder, end of story. But what I find interesting in these few verses is, is in verses 12 and 15. In verse 12, it says, In all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua captured and struck, struck them with the edge of the sword, devoted them to destruction. And then he says this, Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And then verse, verse 15 says, Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He loved nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. You see, the second thing that we are going to understand as being a key to being strong in the Lord is we need to look like Joshua and we need to complete, be completely devoted or obedient to God and to his word. I mean, throughout this whole book of Joshua, we're going to see Joshua as being the obedient servant, faithfully and fearlessly obedient. I mean, throughout each battle that we've studied, the emphasis is never on the, brutal, the brutality, but it's always on his obedience. He obeyed God's command. And when he didn't obey God's command, it was clear that his disobedience resulted in problems for Israel. And so Joshua's, even his personal summary of his involvement in the battles in verse 15 was that he left nothing undone that the Lord had commanded Moses. He obeyed. He was obedient. He was devoted to what God had said. Now, shouldn't that verse 15 
Shouldn't that be the description that we want to be known by? Wouldn't we want it to be that just as the Lord commanded his servant, Kevin did. Just as the Lord commanded his servant, Rob did. Without excuse, without complaint, without delay. I mean, I think, I, I think of what Jesus told his disciples. Uh, that when they, were, uh, when they are to be obedient to him. That he says that he will meet them in heaven saying, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. See, well done is in a matter of obedience. I mean, any of you want to hear Jesus say this? Anybody want to approach Jesus in heaven and have him say this to you? Well done, you good but begrudgingly servant. Well done, you good but you delayed servant. Well done, you good, but when you finally decided to stop making excuses for disobeying me, you finally surrendered and obeyed me, servant. I mean, what is going to be said to us when we approach him? Is it going to be that we were devoted to him? That we were devoted to his word? Or is it, you know, we begrudgingly followed. We dragged our heels. We kicked and screamed because we didn't want to do what God called us to do. Joshua's record here in this conquest and in his life, it isn't measured by the size of his army. It wasn't measured by the cleverness of his strategies or by the record of his victories. His success is recorded as obedience to God. Joshua's record is one that evidences his faithfulness to God's word, especially in the chaotic situations that he faced when disobedience appeared like a completely justifiable alternative. It will be the same thing for you and I. Our records won't be things that we put on our, our resumes. What we're known by isn't going to be how big our bank account was. It won't, it won't be how many Twitter followers that you have. It, it won't be how important your job is. It won't be how, how good of a person you are. It won't be how many times you gave at church. It won't be how many times you came and served in the church. Those things won't matter. Our record will be measured by one thing. Did I place my trust in the obedience of Jesus to the Father and His Spirit working through me. Are we obedient to Him or not? That's what we will be known by. Let's keep moving along. Verses, uh, look at verse 16, 17, 18 with me. It says, So Joshua took all the land and the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Joshan, the lowland of Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad, uh, Belgad and the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all the kings and struck them and put them to death. And Joshua made war a long time with those, all those kings. Did you hear that in verse 18? Joshua made war for a long time with all those kings. Sometimes when we read through the book of Joshua, we think, well, it's a pretty quick story. I mean, we're already in chapter 11 and almost all the battles are over. You know, sometimes we can look and say it sounds rather quick. But actually, as you look through the whole book of Joshua, Joshua 14 will point that the conquest really lasted five to seven years. So what we're seeing in these texts are just a glimpse of the battles. It really took five to seven years for, these, for, for the entire conquest of the land. Verse 19 continues. And he says, There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Look at verse 20 again. Did you hear what it said? It said, 
For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against battle in Israel, in order that they should be devoted to destruction, and they should receive no mercy, but be destroyed. You see, it was the Lord who hardened their hearts. This is similar to the Old Testament uh, when, when God hardened the hearts of Pharaoh. And so God hardened the hearts of the, of the Canaanites in the land so that they would come and fight against Israel. He hardened their hearts so that Israel would be able to take possession of the land. They hardened their hearts so that they would not receive mercy. See, notice who it is that verse 20 is talking about. It was the Lord's doing. It was God who hardened their hearts so they would not fight. It was throughout this whole conquest, it was God who gave Israel the victory over the multitudes of the Northern Alliance, over the the horses and the chariots. It was God who gave them victory over the Southern Alliance. It was God who had given them victory over the people at Ai. It was God who had given them victory over the people at Jericho. It was God. It was God. It was God. Do you recognize who all of these battles is really about? You see, it hasn't been all about the Canaanites. We look and we say, well, yeah, the, the, this story, this book, it's about the Canaanites being defeated. No, sure, they've been defeated, but the story isn't about the Canaanites. Well, the story of Joshua, it's all about the Israelites, right? It's about the Israelites taking possession of the land. Well, yes, the Israelites do that, but this book is not about the Israelites. It's got to be about Joshua, right? I mean, the book's named after Joshua. So the book's about Joshua and Joshua being the great leader that we can all follow. Well, Joshua has exhibited brilliant leadership and he's been used mightily by God. God. But no, this story isn't about Joshua. It's not about the Israelites. It's not about the Canaanites. Now, see, if we believe the sovereignty of God like we said we do, then we would understand it's all about God. This story is all about God. The third thing that we need to do to be strong in the Lord is to understand it's always all about God. It's not about Israel's happiness. It's not about them getting the land. It's about God's glory and God being honored and God being worshipped as the one true God. And it would be easy for us to make Joshua the center of the story and make the story all about Joshua or all about Israel. I mean, that's the tempting thing to do is to make them the priority, make that all about them. But this story and every story, it's always about God. This translates to us as well in our day and age. Because we want to make everything about us. We want to make everything about us. We want to make it all about me, all about mine, all about I. Isn't there a song by Toby Mac about that? Not Toby Mac, Toby Keith. Very different. Toby Keith. Somewhere in there. And... uh, but you see, if we, if we truly believe that God is sovereign, that God is control, then we understand it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's not about any one of us. It's all about God. Your story is not really your story. It's really the story of what God is doing in your life. Your success, your victories, your happiness, they aren't for you. They are there because God has given them to you so that you would honor and you'd worship him as the creator, as the one who gave you those things. And in the same way, your hardship, your your difficulty, your thorn in the flesh, your addiction, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God doing a work in your life. It's about God teaching us to rely and to trust on him 
And not trusting on our own strength. And not trusting on our own intellect. It's about God being honored and worshipped. This is what it means to be strong. It's not about you. It's not about me. You know, this church is the same thing. So many times when we start looking for a church, we, we, we look at a church and we say, I want to find a church that really makes me feel good. And we say, here's my criteria for what the church needs to be. I need this and I need that and I need this and that will really minister to me. But guess what? It's not about you. It's not about you. You know, as a pastor, there's, there's many times, especially in a church plant, where, where, where the church plant becomes about the leader. The reality is, hey, I'm just telling you, this church is not about me. I mean, there are plenty more gifted and more capable people and men that God has brought to this church that could do a better job than I'm doing up here. This church is not about me. And I refuse to make it about me. It's not about any of us. It's about God being glorified. It's about his mission in this city and in this world. It's about God's gospel going forward. It's about people coming to know him as their savior. We've said our mission statement here at Restoration Church, our purpose for existing is to know Christ and to make Christ known. Who's it about? Christ. It's about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. Now, does God use us? Does God speak to us? Does God guide us? Does God, does God lead us? Absolutely, every step of the way. And I, I pray that you get something out of these messages. I pray that you being involved in this church blesses you and encourages you. But let me just say, it's not about us. And so many times we come into church or we come into life and we want to make it all about me. And you know, half the times that we become so discouraged and frustrated is because we're not looking at the big picture. We're not making it all about God making all about me, all about I, all about mine. This is what it means to be strong. It means that we recognize it's not about us. It means that we trust completely in God's sovereignty, that we are completely devoted to him. And because God is sovereign, because God is working things out for his glory, we trust that he knows what he is doing. So what does it mean for us to be strong? We've harped on this for 10 weeks now on be strong, be strong, be strong. For us to be strong, this is what it means. It means, number one, that we trust in the sovereignty of God. We trust that God is in control of every situation. We trust that every good gift that comes to us is from God. We trust that the difficult times, the the hard things that we're going through, we're not alone. God is in the midst. God is working these things out. And we don't understand the big picture, but God is working. God is in the midst of that. This is what it means to be strong, that we trust that God is in control. It means, number two, that we are completely devoted to God. We want to be strong. It's not because we're so strong on our own. The Israelites, Joshua, they weren't strong because they, were, they didn't win all these battles in, in, in the promised land because they were so creative. They won these battles because they were devoted to God. And God used them. And God did the work, but God used them because they were obedient to him. We want to be used by God. We've got to be obedient. We've got to be completely devoted. And third thing, the third way that we're going to be able to be strong is when we realize it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about God. It's always about God. I will invite you to respond to God's word with me this morning. As we look at this idea of being strong, the temptation for all of us 
temptation of our flesh is to always come back and make it about us. We want to live in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom. We always want to make it about us. And this is one of the reasons why we come to church on Sunday morning so we can worship God and be reminded, God, it's all about you. God, we come to worship you as our Savior, as our Creator, because it is all about you. And I want to invite you this morning, some of you today, you need to spend some time with God in prayer. Because we've been living in a way that makes it where it's not all about God. We've been living in a way where it's all about me. It's all about mine. It's all about what I want. And we've been saying, God, I want to be strong, but we're believing by our own strength and our own intellect and our own knowledge and our own wisdom. And guess what? You live like that long enough and you realize you're just spinning wheels. You're never getting any traction. You're never really able to move forward. So we need to, some of us need to spend some time in prayer and just empty ourselves and say, God, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've made it all about me. God, I surrender to you. God, I'm fully devoted to what you have in us. God, I don't understand the situation I'm going through. God, I don't understand the difficulty. I don't understand why I have to experience these hard things. But God, you do. God, you're still sovereign. God, you're still in control. Maybe you today need to spend some time just praying before God, saying, God, I'm yours. Maybe today you just need to spend some time worshiping God for who he is. Maybe as the worship team comes forward and and leads in these next couple of songs, maybe you need to take this opportunity just to say, hey, God, you are greater than I could ever imagine. And God, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to worship and praise you because you are worthy of all of my adoration, of all of my praise, of all of my worship. This is what it means for us to be strong. This is why this is how we do it. God has given us the blueprint in his word. Now the question is, will we step forward and do it? Will we trust in the sovereignty of God? Will we be devoted completely to him? Will we surrender ourselves to make it all about God? Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much for your word. And just, Lord, for speaking to every one of us directly today. God, I know that every one of us wants to be used by you. We want to be known as being somebody who is strong. Somebody, God, that you could do mighty things through. God, my desire for this church, God, is that you would do mighty things within this church. That you would would work miracles and that, God, your gospel would go forth. That more people would be surrendered to know you. And then would turn around and then make you known. God, that is our desire. But God, it doesn't happen because we're so strong and because we're so clever. It happens because we surrender ourselves to you and and, and we trust in your plan. We trust in your sovereignty and, and we allow you to work through us. God, and I pray for every one of us in here today. God, you know exactly what it is we need to hear today. God, I pray for those that are frustrated, that are hurting, that are overwhelmed that, God, your sovereignty would speak to them today, that they would see that you are the God who is in control, that you are the God who is sovereign, and and even the hard things, that, God, you are working those things out for our good, for your purposes, that, God, we are not alone, that these hardships, these difficulties, God, we're not alone. You are working these things out. You are walking through every step with us. God, I pray for those of us in here today who are prideful, 
who are prideful because we have it all figured out. We have it all together. God, I pray that you would break us to let us see that, God, it's not about us. It's not about our own intellect and our own knowledge and our own wisdom. God, it's all about you. And God, I pray that just as Joshua's story, his story was summarized that he was devoted to you. God, I pray that would be said of us, every one of us, that we would be known as people who are obedient to your word, that are completely devoted to you because God, that's when you use us. God, that's when you do crazy, remarkable things through us, just like you did through Joshua. God, I pray for those of us that are struggling today that we'd have the faith to come before you and say, God, I need you right here, right now. God, I pray that your spirit would touch every person in that spot today. That as as we surrender ourselves to you, that your spirit would wrap your arms around us and comfort us and fill us with your love. And that we'd feel your presence all around us here right now. And God, as we take these next few minutes and respond to you through worship, God, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified and that we would meet with you in this time and this place. And we ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.